Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Episode 140 of The Morning After. I'm Jesse Kiefer. I'm Sarah Kamen. On today's show, owner and founder Ron Silver and executive chef Chris Mitchell of Bubbies with locations in Tribeca, the Highline, and, whoa, Japan. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll see if the quiz gods are shining down on Ron and Chris when it's time for The Morning After quiz. But first, Miss Sari Kamen, you got a little uh, weird food news for us this of week? Of course I do. Of course, and uh, so nice to see you today, Jesse. It is, yeah, snowstorm in March. Yeah. Really cool. Aggressive snowstorm, (laughs) welcoming spring. It's it's a great feeling. I'm really happy to be here. Okay, starting out, you know, there's a really big story going around, and I'm actually, I'm serious. Uh, (laughs) I would hope that your food news is serious. No, it's actually kind of serious this week. I'm I'm sure you guys have probably heard there was a big raid at a maraschino cherry factory. Everyone's nodding in studio because it's actually a really big story. Jesse looks super confused. I missed confused. this part. Well, at least someone doesn't know. <laughs> someone can act surprised. Okay, I, I am surprised. <laughs> so um, a maraschino cherry factory got raided this week by the police because there was a call claiming the factory had been dumping hazardous waste in the water supply system. So uh, the cops went over to check it out. They didn't see any hazardous waste. Everything looked kind of normal. And then one of the cops thought he smelled marijuana. He said something. The owner promptly went into the bathroom and shot himself. (gasps) I know. This is a serious story. So actually what happened is they turned out there was like a secret room um, behind the the factory, like the functional factory that was holding 80 pounds of marijuana, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash, and several vintage luxury cars hidden under a tarp in a back lot. So Brooklyn has its own little Breaking Bad. Oh, my god! I know. This is very dramatic. I so, would never think, like, weed dealing would be that dramatic. I know. It's, like, legal in other states. <laughs> it's, like, how bad can the punishment really be? Um, but anyway, like, Not it just... death. Yeah. It just gets weirder and weirder. <clears throat> Apparently, um, the, the cherry factory is back in business. Because it was operating normally. And so that hazardous chemical called corn syrup wasn't found? No, I think it was just like <laughs> an underground weed factory. Wow. I, heard uh, that the, I heard that the red dye was turning the bees red in the neighborhood. Okay. I really did. Truly? Yep. Well, that's actually really bad because bees are very important. Okay, so there was an underground bat cave-esque entrance to the marijuana farm. And it was accessed by unlocking a room, like total Batman style, where he stored his fleet of luxury cars. And that opened a pair of closet doors. And there was a going around button controlled steel shelves and past a fake wall. And then you climb down a ladder through a hole in the floor and then get to the cave, which held up to 12 Hundred plants. They had a complex irrigation system and, um, quote, network of 120 high-end growing lamps. Whoa! Wow! Wow! I mean, how did they? They just smelled marijuana. They and smelled. Then that they got led like, to this. Yes. And before they even like found the Batcave entrance, the guy went and knocked himself off. 
which just seems so overdramatic. And they also found a copy of the book World Encyclopedia of Organized Crime. So he was really studying up. He was, he was really a professional. Wow. But it's weird. It's like you would have thought that he had a better backup plan. Yeah. I mean, if you've got all those, like, those that smoke and mirrors to hide all that I other know. stuff. I know. You would have, you would have thunk. And, like, why not just go to Colorado or, like, one of those places? Well, maybe his family was in Brooklyn, you know. Well, he actually, didn't want to be too far well, it was a family business. So his sister was running the business with him. But they don't know if any of the employees were in on it. Because the maraschino, I mean, it was a a legit business. Well, someone obviously tipped it off. Like, who else says hazardous chemicals? Well, they probably smelled something. But maybe someone doesn't know what marijuana smells like. I don't. It's not hazardous to you. (laughs) Fairy. And it's not hazardous to you, right? It's definitely not hazardous. Good for you. By the way, that's probably one of 10,000 of those in Brooklyn. So... Oh, really? Probably. I mean, come on. This is Brooklyn. Okay, you heard it here first. One of <laughs> okay, so this is, a, this is a really dramatic story. And I'm sorry it's not that funny, but it's just kind of weird. Had to share it. Well, I mean, it's local. It is local. So is the weed. <laughs> what do you think they're going to do with all that? They're uh, making the best old fashions ever. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what they're well, doing. Well, no, the it. cherries are back in business. Yeah. So weird. Okay, moving on. They should just comp- combine them. Yeah. Marijuana infused maraschino cherries. I think I'm that's a good that's idea. sure that's going to yeah, happen. It's Probably coming. happen. <laughs> and just call it the cherry on top. Uh, so, uh, such a good idea. Yeah. You guys should start a restaurant. <laughs> All right, KFC, not Kentucky, the formerly known as Kentucky Fried Chicken, now just KFC, has teamed up in the UK with the company Seattle's Best Coffee. In also, the UK? Okay. In, not in the UK, but okay. okay. Um, so they are collaborating on coffee cups that are edible. Basically, they're cookies. So uh, you can get your coffee, and then you can eat the cup, and it's kind of weird. They are wrapped in sugar paper, and they have a heat-resistant layer of white chocolate, so they don't have to make edible cup sleeves, too. So if you think it's a good idea to consume a heat-resistant layer of anything, you might enjoy these. (laughs) The weirdest part is that the cups are infused with different aromas, such as coconut sun cream, freshly cut grass, and wildflowers. (laughs) For your coffee? Yeah. No, the cups. I it's know. It's like still coffee, but... But then you put the coffee in that. And you're like, oh, this pretty sure it's like called coffee. an ice cream cone, by the way. <laughs> well, Sorry. Uh, yeah. They want to associate the drinking process with warm weather and that feeling of lying on the grass on a summer day while consuming coffee. Does that sound gross? You're like, oh, I mean, this coffee smells like grass. Those, the like, the Speaking sensory ideas sounds really great. Like, laying in no, warm summer grass. No, it sounds like one of those things you put in your car. Together. To, like, fresh in your car. And I'm like, I'm not a big fan of um, flavored coffee anything, so I don't think grass-flavored so coffee is going to make you. me feel any better. No. I don't think grass-flavored. Guys, how do you feel about grass-flavored Would you drink, would you drink that and then eat your cup, too? No. 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 Only if no. it were infused with marijuana, I would do that. <laughs> Well done. That's, that's the kind of grass you're looking for. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, I tried to make that connection. It didn't read on radio. Okay. <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, there's some kind of like online retail company uh, called Fred. Fred and Friends. Fred and Friends, okay. Fred and Friends, have you heard of it? No. Oh, okay, I hadn't either. They're releasing a baby bottle that looks like a beer bottle. Mm, it's, called, awesome. it's called Fred's Chill Baby Little Lager. Stop. I'm not. I can't. Well, I mean, it's a good thing it's not, you know, an IPA. It's like a more sessionable beer. It's a lager. It's a lager. something lighter. So when baby baby chugs its bottle, now it looks like baby's chugging a beer. 
Doesn't really have beer in it. It's a BPA-free container, so that's great. Holds up to 10 fluid ounces. And um, it's got a food-grade silicon nipple. I mean, it's not for baby, by the way. This is for parents' entertainment. Well, actually, I looked on the website, and it was a baby in the photo. I know, but no baby is like, oh, I'm going to use my favorite beer bottle. No, the baby doesn't know about her. I mean, I guess I was about to, like, bring the two things together of, like, you know, this is, like, influencing children to drink at an earlier age. But no. they're going to be done with that bottle by the time they're, like, three, so they're not even going to know anything. No, it's just to identify which parents should have no business having children or not. <laughs> no, they'll grow up and turn that bottle into a bong to, to go back to the maraschino thing. That's what will happen. Oh, we're, we're still working that. Connection. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. It's just a really weird week. What I believe I that. No, I'm with you on that. I feel I feel weird too. I'm a, I'm traumatized by this cherry guy. Did I just make everyone uncomfortable? Is that what just happened? No, no, no. Okay, it's just it's it is it's sad and it's it's so intricate that it sounds like the plot of a film. It is. It's it's exactly Breaking Bad. But I am kind of disappointed the guy killed himself over marijuana and not meth. Well, I mean, maybe there was more to it, and Probably. I'm sure that will all come out. I'm sure it will. But, you know, in the movies, like, he wouldn't get caught. He would, like, almost get caught. Yeah, he'd be like, they'd be like, I smell marijuana, and be like, oh, you know, that's the cherries, and the cops would be like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> they this, these are, yeah. This is our herbal infusion cherry. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they didn't find the Batcave until after, you know, the guy had gone to the bathroom and killed himself. You keep saying that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's true. <laughs> Someone, well, someone buy the story. I someone think this co-op is, it right now. I think this is the perfect time for us to take a break. Perfect. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hey, what's up? This is John Norris, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. And we're back here on the morning after. In 1990, Ron Silver started Bubby's as a pie company in Tribeca, and months after its opening, transformed it into a restaurant. Now he and executive chef have Bubby's all over the place. You've got one in Tribeca, you've got one on the High Line now, and one in Japan. Welcome to the morning after. Chris we have we have four Ron. in Japan. You have four in Japan, and almost we're almost five. You guys are big in Japan. We're big in Japan. 
Oh, man. Congratulations on that. I definitely want to certainly spend a good amount of time talking about Japan. But first, I just want to know, you know the state of Tribeca in 1990 when you opened up your, your first spot. Well, it was a very quiet neighborhood. Um, I mean, there were literally no traffic lights and guys standing around 55-gallon drums with, with fire, you know. Wow. And fire. <clears throat> You know, it was it was definitely underdeveloped and a lot of artists and res- residents and quiet, out-of-the-way place. I mean, the first time I ever went to go look... The first time I was in Tribeca was to look at this space, and I had no idea that... I, I thought that the world just fell off after Canal Street. I mean, I, I worked in Tribeca for years, and I do like to say that, you know you end up in Tribeca. You never, like, just find yourself in Tribeca. You're in Tribeca on the way to Tribeca. There's no, like, just... Right, you have to be like, trying to go there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so it was super commercial down there at the time? It was just quiet. A lot of rundown buildings and a lot of old warehouses and still remnants of dairy businesses. And and it was just kind of quiet, you know, and a few movie stars living down there. So what made you want to open a business there? Well... I, I famously in in my own little world opened opened my business with two days notice and with ten thousand dollars. So really? I didn't have a big, huge plan. <laughs> and you were just gonna sell pies. I was selling pies, and basically we just started selling. We we cooked Thanksgiving dinner, um, we, and the next day we just. just sold Thanksgiving leftovers. That was my opening menu. <laughs> that was your opening menu? Yeah. That's pretty smart. Yeah. yeah reusing all Thrifty. that stuff. Thrifty. Absolutely. So um, so why pies? Why was that uh, what you wanted to get started doing? Well, really the only pie in town at that time was Little Pie Company, and I personally had never had a good pie. Um, most of the pie I'd ever eaten was grocery store, frozen, horrible things with lots of cornstarchy stuff inside. So... I, I think for some reason I just felt like the pie deserved more respect than that. And I mm. set out to learn how to do it. So before this, I, I read a little bit about this. You were working in restaurants, and I assume in, in Manhattan. Yeah. And you were really unhappy with the way people were using food and what they were putting into dishes and things like that. Well, I was really cooking for people in the 80s, and and it was very big plates and small portions with little stupid garnishes, and I wasn't happy with that. Um, what about the ingredients? Because I know Bubby's is, is really focused on, on local, on fresh, on seasonal. Well, I've, you know, I've always gone to the farmer's market, which was something fairly unusual. I mean, Union Square was right next to the farmer's market, and I imagine they were going to the market, but it, it was sort of quirky to be doing at the time um mostly i was disturbed about sort of fake french cooking and these sort of overly garnished things and i just wanted to have some hearty american food i i love american food so that's that's really you know i grew up i grew up jewish in salt lake city so i was just coveting (laughs) fried pork chops you know all day long jello salad you were the one Oh my god! I would have like just panting at windows, you know, all steamed up, looking at these little families eating their. You were that Jew. Cool whip and shit. I was that Jew. Oh, I heard about you. Yeah. Oh. Amazing. So, so what does it feel like, you know, to to be where we are, and in, in terms of the, you know, the farm to table movement, and look at it as such. To say it's like a growing trend is. 
you know, it's, it's not, not, it's not, it's anymore. not, it is, it's, no. it's, I mean, it's explosive. It's, it's at capacity. I mean, how does it feel to be someone who is truly a pioneer? Like whether or not you want to take credit for that and to, to look around and see so many of your, your chef peers kind of like just having figured it out in the past decade. Uh, well, I don't exactly look at it like that. Right. I how don't, do you see I, it? I don't feel like a pioneer so much. Um, as just somebody who's lucky to get what to do what I like to do, like I always feel like I'm getting away with murder. Um, as far as all this farm to table stuff, I think it's exciting, and I, I guess in a certain way, you know, lots and lots and lots of places in the world have lived in a farm to table way forever, and so did America up until you know 1948, really, and I think it's really just getting back to a certain kind of cooking. And in that way, I feel proud of what Bubby's is doing because we really do try to stay off the commercial food grid and we work with a lot of different vendors that do very small uh, production of what they do and put a lot of love into it. Does it feel validating or, or, or are you inclined to be like, you guys, duh, like I've been doing this for so long? I mean, I tell Ron all the time, uh, he, he was doing it probably 10 years before anyone else before there was certainly like a name for well, it. well he just didn't tell anyone right so i mean no, i'm a terrible at marketing <laughs> by the way Well, you're doing something right because they're still there so, that's true so he was doing all these things and, and put a lot of a care and attention and it's kind of you know with the david changs and april bloomfields of the world that kind of come into its own in the last 10 years in new york but um the reason I, I came in, in, to work with him is because he genuinely cares about the food that he's putting in front of his customers, much like Americans did at their dinner table, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So that's kind of the genesis. Do a lot of our customers understand, like, what the mission that Ron has set out to do and brought me on to, like, kind of continue doing? Um, no, but, I mean, we, we have a lot of philosophical talks, and, and we're proud of, of what we're doing. We don't you know, use commercial soda or commercial uh, pork bellies or beef or any of those types of things that you would find in even the best restaurants in the world. Um, but we're not necessarily doing it, you know, to get pats on the back. I mean, he definitely is not doing it for that. We're doing it because we genuinely care about the products that we're bringing into the, the restaurant and, and showing them the respect that we think that they deserve. Yeah. I mean, I agree that you guys are completely unflashy about, you know, the way that you are sourcing your products and um, your your mission. And it's interesting. I, you know, I've been looking at your website a lot lately. And I mentioned to you, I used to work downtown around the corner from Bubby's in Tribeca. And so that for me was like a place I would go after work when it was late and it was great because it was like open all night. And you could get booze at any time and like great nachos and like you know, that's that's all I cared about because the food was good and it was solid and it was open. So to be looking back and like revisiting Bubby's, there's so much philosophy there, and there's so much thoughtfulness and care put into like how you're sourcing and why you're doing what you're doing. And it's just interesting because that was not what brought me in there in the first place. But I think that it really not, shouldn't be either. And it wasn't. But had I, but had I maybe looked at your website and like not necessarily been right around the corner, I I would have gone there. You know, I'd have been like, oh, this is a reason that I would want to go there. So I would have sought it out. But it just so happened, you know, that the food was good and it was there. But I do, you know, you're out. You, when the question about if it's validating or not, I think it's it's very interesting because I, I have been 
on the same corner for 25 years. And just recently I watched somebody who's very famous for their farm-to-table cooking, and they sort of opened and closed in six months mm-hmm. right around the corner uh, from Bubby's. And, and I think that it's not really enough to just be, you know, thinking about your food in a, in a political way. Well, especially and, now that everyone's doing that. Everyone not, is, and everybody, new. so you have to do a good job, and that's the bottom line on the thing. Well, I mean, I really. think the big differentiator is everyone's saying they're doing it, so actually doing it and saying you're doing it. Well, there's it a lot of cherry picking going on. Are two entirely different things. Right. Because I think just like the place that you worked before will uh, will tend to, or places you know like that will tend to list the six things that they did get, but all the other stuff might be coming from just regular commercial sources and... You know, and they really can't. They, they. I yeah. think the big difference is that the a lot of operators are much more concerned with making money than I, than I am. Right. Know? Well, and then something else that you guys are doing, you're just making delicious food. You're making comfort food that everybody can relate to. You're not doing, you know, the same kind of like beet tartare with you know local microgreens. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's what I mean. Like you're not you're not being flashy about the fact that it's like local, organic, whatever it is. Like you're just still making great food. That's really accessible for everyone. And it's not elitist. It's not overpriced. Not that I'm saying other people are, but it's just food that kind of like anybody can get into. Well, I mean, I think the, the reason I was drawn to Ron and we had known each other previous to me working there, um, is that what's always been important to me. And I, I did work in high end restaurants in New York city was that, Everyone can come and enjoy a meal at Bubby's, from the guy that delivers our mail to a doctor, a lawyer, a movie star, whoever. Um, it just kind of has that feel like your home. And Ron always says it's like people's front room. Um, so I think that it's so accessible, and we haven't put this boundary up that you can't get through the door or we've outpriced half of the neighborhood. Um, and I think that the fact that anyone of any walk of life, of any race, from any borough, from anywhere in the United States can come and enjoy a really great meal of Bubbies. I always felt that, you know, and I was there always at such a weird kind of late time. And I would look around the room and I'd be like, there is more diversity in this room in Bubbies than I see anywhere else in New York, with exception of like the subway. <laughs> well, and it's amazing to me, just ha- having been there all that time, is how many people feel like so much ownership about it and at different times it's different people it's amazing you know i bet i bet your brunch overnight like or, brunch looks so different than i don't know 2 a.m i'm sure totally right yeah. i mean totally opposite ends of the spectrum um but everyone's there for the same menu yeah well i mean and even when we make like subtle changes like the comment cards come back as like death threats to me that like i can't believe you changed this thing that's been here so people do feel um, I told Ron to like use a sports analogy, like the Green Bay Packers are owned by the city of Green Bay. Like the people of Tribeca basically own Bubbies, and I'm like their employee, much more so than Ron's. <laughs> um, so, but it's nice. I mean, it's nice having, you know, Bubbies is part of the fabric of the New York City landscape, mm-hmm. uh, which is a really nice feeling. But I, I've also I've literally had more than five or six times people have their first date at Bubbies get engaged, get married, celebrate there, come in knocked up, have that baby. At brunch. Feed them their first meal. <laughs> yeah. And then have that kid have their first job at Bubby's. It's like, that is a crazy thing to experience. That is. Especially more than five or six times, you yeah. know? 
Do you guys feel like you've been able to, to cultivate that same atmosphere in the Highline location? Well, we really just got going that's there. That's pretty new, yeah. It, um, and it's a very different neighborhood, obviously. Uh, you know, before we opened, we had signs up saying we wanted to bring sweetness, purity, and wholesomeness to the meatpacking district. It and needs it. It really does. It used to have it with these very sweet transvestite hookers and meat packers, you know, really like the heart of America. And now it's sort of before the clubs moved in. Yeah, before the well, they had clubs well, then but also the good kinds of clubs. Yeah, I those imagine. were some <laughs> wild clubs. Um, so, what steps are you taking to kind of try to 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 create the same atmosphere? Well, I mean, I think. Um, just the diversity of the menu, that it's something that, you know, building ourselves into the Highline itself and the experience of the Highline. So you have a family from Ohio that, you know, walks off and we're the first stop at the end of the Highline. So, you know, they can see things on our menu that, that are familiar to them. So that's one of the things we've done kind of a neighborhood outreach to the people in the West Village because that, that is a neighborhood that is one that we want to establish ourselves in. And they don't necessarily want to come to meatpacking because there's a deep sure. hatred for the meatpacking. So we, we, we tend to say we're on the fringe of the West Village to kind of get away from that connotation of the meatpacking district. Um, but we're, we're, we're kind of the only familyhood, family establishment in, in the neighborhood. Um, but it's nice. I mean, having, having an audience that turns over every single day is kind of cool. Um, it's nice to see the same faces all the time, but um, it is a very transient neighborhood. So we're kind of going against the grain, which which I think is is cool. We're, we're definitely a unique experience. Um, you know, people go to the Chelsea Market, and that's like the seventh layer of hell. And then they can come and like kind of relax at Bubby's and have you know a root beer and a burger, and it's kind of like that quintessential not only New York experience, but but. Um, American experience, which we're providing to people. Yeah. It is awesome to know that you can get amazing tacos in the seventh layer of hell. <laughs> it is. It is. That's the only reason to go to the Chelsea Market. Sorry to anyone that works in the Chelsea Market. Go ahead. I, I do want to talk about this. Um, I don't know the sense of like defending the American table and all of the tradition. I mean, you guys feel really, really strongly about this being an American restaurant. And it's very hard to define what that is because there's not a lot of like culturally American food ways that you know exist within this country. Um, so what? Well, is- they're all at they're all at people's homes, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you, like, wh- what is the American table, and how did you get about? How did you go about kind of just creating a menu based on that? Because it's it, it's not controversial necessarily, but it is somewhat elusive. It is. Um- you know, one of the places that that uh, really stands out is in Japan, because mm. American food. If you ask a hundred people in Japan what American food is, they'll say McDonald's, right, or Denny's, or you know, fat people. Yeah, that's what they. That, that is American it. food is fat people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Soylent Green. Um, we have that, and I think in America it's even confused, and I guess. Uh, over over the years, I've really tr- tried to go back and I've written a couple of books, and one of them was a, a, this pie cookbook. And I ended up doing a lot of research and looking at some really old books because pie goes way back in America. And I mean, it came over as meat pies, and then the abundance in America, just all this fruit, they you know people started jamming things into dough. 
Um, and I guess just looking at all of that and, and sort of understanding how you know, every every day almost could be a new sort of adventure in American food. And so, there's some very big pieces, like most of what we consider to be Southern food is sort of West African food. So all these West African, you know, foodways were, you know, made their way into the American fabric and English food and Scottish food and Italian food and German food and, you know, and then Chinese food. And, you know, it's like these groups of people as you could really pick any one of them. They, they really had struggles to be in America because every single group that came over was just pounded on. But what they what they really had was their food, and you know, in a, in a way, that's the thing that helped them to integrate into the culture. Even if you take like Vietnamese people coming over after the Vietnam War, and and it, you know, it probably looked pretty pretty weird for some Los Angelinos to be saying, well, let's go check out the Vietnamese neighborhood for food. Because it, it was very different back then. I remember that. You know, I remember what that was like. And Vietnamese people seemed like they might as well have been Martians. Oh. So it's just interesting to see how the American table really develops into this very complicated uh, patchwork of things. And it, uh, I think it just needs to be celebrated and looked at and sort of not necessarily defined. Well, celebrated in terms of the diversity and, like, the cultural appropriation of these different kinds of cuisines or I mean how dedicated are you to restricting your menu to to you know a, a products that are traditionally historically from the United States because that would be pretty limiting well it's actually not limiting because it, it really is almost anything it's like pizza which I'm looking at right now here at at Roberta's yes here of course at Roberta's um you know, any, any number of things end up... It's like sriracha sauce is was invented in Los Angeles. Yeah. And General Cho's chicken, is that... Yeah. That was an American thing. That's Chop 100% suey. American. So, lo mein, all of that. I all mean... Lo mein. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Ron and I talk about it kind of all the time. And there are these kind of nostalgic places, like, not too far from where we are in New York City. Um, there's a place called White Mana. In over the the river in New Jersey, and it's like the quintessential burger place. And Ron and I like have an affinity for this place. It's, it's one of the conversations that we first had. There's also this place called the Albion Grill, which is out in Salt Lake City. And 20 years ago, Ron served me a sandwich. Unbeknownst to the two of us, my family used to go skiing in Alta, Utah, every year. So for us, the American table is like those nostalgic things like how you grew up like he talked about american food like um and all these other ethnicities coming over here like chicken parmesan is american creation it's like the bastardization of, of these ethnic foods but in a in a thoughtful way that made them more palatable to the american people so big portions of meat totally so ron when he hired me it was like you know bubby's is a smithsonian of american food so we pay tribute to them but one of the things that we constantly talk about is taking a classic dish and kind of doing a reinterpretation of it in a, in a fun and exciting way, but using ingredients that, that are not only local, but like are familiar to the American palate. Like we do a, 
A classic New York dish is a bacon, egg, and cheese. Normally, you'd get it on a Kaiser roll, American cheese, bacon. But in the restaurant, we do it with uh, cornbread, which is a, a quintessential southern dish. We make a puree out of it. Sorry to say puree, Ron. Um, was that too fancy? It, it was way too fancy. We had we actually had a conversation in the car on the way this over. This is actually our entire conflict because <laughs> everything that he's saying is really bullshit. Don't you and dare say phone. This is where we do absolutely just butt heads because Chris is like, let's twist something. I'm like, let's fucking keep it exactly not twisted. But I mean, the dish like he fought me for weeks, and I was like, let me just show it to you. Let me show it to you, and then I take burrata. And then so I put a beautiful piece of burrata that we actually import from Italy because it's it's just amazing, the most amazing burrata. Yeah, because it's delicious. Your entire yes. life. Then it's two fried eggs, the bacon that we make at the restaurant. And then there's this hot sauce that I make from scratch and then ricotta salata to add some saltiness to the dish. And people are like, holy shit, this is like a crazy. They think that they're going to get a sandwich and then they get something that's completely turned on its head. Um Although that's not necessarily Ron's mission, he allows me the creativity to do things in a very one-off basis that allows me to be creative and thoughtful. But it's 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 bread, it's bacon, it's cheese. Yeah, I mean, in eggs, that's the dish. But, but it's a totally reimagined version of that dish. But you know, the other thing is, is that you know, since I've I've really been at this a long time, and <clears throat> you know, there is such thing as getting old, and you know. It's it is good to get some you know fresh perspective on things and you know and remain open minded about it and not just be like knocking the dust off of Smithsonian recipes from Thomas Jefferson, which you know which I would be happy to do. I just think that it ends up going people, you know, Bubby's is philosophical, but people don't, are not coming. People don't go out to eat for philosophy. They want to eat right. and they want to then go home and do whatever they're going to do. In most places. Yes. Maybe not at I guess there's a, a show, but, you know. Yeah. But why is it Bubby's and not Grandma's? <clears throat> like, how many people show up and they're like, oh, I thought this was going to be like a matzo ball and like pastrami sandwich and kind We of do thing. have those two things. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, in terms I, of I mean, keeping I, it like I, classically American. I started it as a pie company and I was going to call it Grandma's Pies, but then I realized that there already was that. <laughs> and so then I was like, well, how about Bubby's then? That was sort of the yeah the like, board meeting. Everyone in has my a head. <laughs> Everyone probably does. So, are there any recipes from either of your bubbies on the menu? But apparently, both of our bubbies, all of our bubbies, were terrible cooks. Mine, <laughs> mine was awful. Like the the reason I learned how to cook was because um, both my grandparents on both sides. Um, neither no family recipes my mom like i love her to death like she had like three dishes that she would trot out and like i like was forced into learning how to cook because i like to eat so you could survive so ba- i mean basically and at like age yeah. 11 i was like the family cook um <laughs> but the, but to tell you the truth like not having uh i came up in a in a very strict italian kitchen where i was the only person that didn't speak italian and they loved me because my grandmother didn't make the best sauce and didn't have a certain way of making meatballs. So I have like kind of a chameleon's uh, aesthetic, I would say. In that Foster I, child. Yeah, I don't have a way to season or I, I grew up like I'm 100% Irish. I grew up eating meat and potatoes. Um, I still have an affinity for cabbage and those types of things. But like my lens was so singular as a child growing up that when I was 
you know, able to see the world through a totally different set of eyes, um, I gravitated towards a bunch of different regional styles of cuisine and, and, and things like that. So it made my job easier because I wasn't like, oh, you can only make tomato sauce this way or you can only do this or like my mother made – my mother didn't make the best anything. I mean she made the best mother, but she didn't, she didn't make the best – I mean to this day she's like, can I substitute – oregano for cilantro i'm like mom like don't even call me with those types of questions because it's just like ridiculous she just like throws a bunch of shit in a pan and and sees how it works out but but you know i i learned the love of food because like i like to eat i you know i always say like bobby flay taught me how to cook like watching tv because i would watch this show that he had hot off the grill um and he had like his sommelier there he had his fishmonger and and i would like watch it religiously and that basically showed me like all of these new ingredients and what was going on in the world Bobby Flay is the new Julia Child I guess guess so I guess and I'm not even that old but I mean it was like back you look really old (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding he doesn't it was was back when like the Food Network actually had something to give and I hope they're not a sponsor Um, we wish uh, (laughs) do we would we be in these shipping containers in the back it wouldn't be as cool this is the best (laughs) I love it out here it wouldn't be as cool we'd be sitting on like Guy Fieri's head or something like that Um, that'd be spiky I, yeah it, it would be um, but no that's the cool thing about Bubbies is that like there's something for everyone um, and it's cool that like I, I'm I'm kind of like a new generation of chefs but like Ron and I can still have philosophical conversations about like what we think should go on the menu but we stay true to like it took me a very long time to understand what Bubbies is because it's this huge beast of a, of a restaurant group um, so Everyone has a different thought of what American food is, myself included. Um, but Ron is is a student of of the history of American cuisine, so it's kind of cool that I get an education every single day about what's going on in the world. So, what was the what started the the ball rolling to bring American food, your American food, to Japan? <laughs> well, as usual, it, I mean, it just fell in my lap. You just showed up in Japan and you're uh, like, "Let's open a restaurant." I, I, I walked into my re- I walked into to Bubby's and my manager said these call these guys back they want to open up in Japan can I really I, I said something terrible back it's like call them back and tell them to blow me <laughs> even when you whisper it we can still hear yeah, it <laughs> it's fine and he said he really he should call them <laughs> and I so I, I called and the guy the guy was like um, we really want to bring Bubby's to Japan and I was like I am absolutely not interested and he said, well, maybe we can have lunch. And I said, I eat lunch every day. I really don't care if you're there or not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, okay, lunch sounds good then. And so was, New york I love it. Next day we had lunch. And, and uh, <clears throat> three days later, the owners of this company flew in from Japan. And we all had lunch. Um, and then I was sitting in a, a vanilla box in Yokohama two weeks later. With a hard hat on, and uh, and that's how that happened. So how did they win you over? They still haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. You uh, have four restaurants in Japan, and they're they're actually like as we're they're they're, yeah, they're here they're right here now. They're here right now, like so the executive chef. Oh my god, get them in here! No, well they're not. Yeah, they're not here. 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 Oh. They're in New York. They're, in, they're probably at the Statue of Liberty or something right now. Yeah, um, in a snowstorm. Yeah, right? snow so, toy shop. That sounds so them. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, they're eating ramen at uh, Ivan Ramen. Um, He's actually coming in two weeks. Oh, oh nice. Good. Oh, yeah. thanks for the plug. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it did, you know, it really was well received there. It was a lot of funny stuff, but we were sort of the first American but food how do, there. Has it changed perceptions over there? For, are people like, what is this? It's American. Like, it must be full of fat people. And they go in and they're like, oh. Well, I think it has started to change perceptions about, the, you know, what what kind of food American food can be. Yeah. Uh, and it certainly has brought some other New York City brands over there after, you know, after we opened. Is it a, is it a tourist attraction? Yes, and it's also a sort of uh, expat attraction because uh. there's a lot of you know business and military and yeah, you know a lot of Americans it. running around and and baseball players and stuff like that. Hmm. You know, it's a, being big in Japan is a it's a big group of people that are sort of have left America to be sort of the best nightclub owner and yeah. sort of things like that. It's funny. It it is a cliche of itself in lots of ways. It, it's awesome over there, though. Yeah. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you're finding the humor out of it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, this has been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I wish you more more luck in Japan. Thanks. And continued luck in, in New York, of course. We're going to take a break here on The Morning After. And we're going to come back with The Morning After Quiz. You are listening to More Knife Show. On HeritageRadioNetwork.org, this is The Morning After. Reggie Watts, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And we're back here on the morning after. We've been talking to Ron Silver and Chris Mitchell of Bubby's Restaurant Group. So, guys, it's time for the morning after quiz. You know all about your restaurant, Bubby's, but what do you know about Michael Jackson's favorite hairy companion, Bubbles the Chimp? Oh, man. Oh, it's God. time for the morning after quiz. <laughs> kind of a stretch. Something tells me Ron Bub- will know a lot about this. <laughs> Ron may remember some of these things. So, um, question one: A regular travel companion of Michael Jackson's. In when in which of these places did Bubbles not drink tea with the singer? Okay, so Bubbles would go and travel with Michael Jackson, and and they would drink tea together often for some reason. So, uh, is it A at Elizabeth Taylor's home in Los Angeles? Is it B at City Hall with the mayor of Osaka? Or is it C at 10 Downing Street with Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of Great Britain? Which Where way? did Bubbles not drink tea with Michael Jackson? I'm saying Margaret Thatcher. I'm saying C too. You're saying C. Yeah. 
Yes, it is C. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, you think she wouldn't have allowed that? I don't think she would have a monkey in her in her room. Well, yeah. it actually wasn't because of her. It was because of quarantine laws in Great Britain uh, that, that Bubbles uh, wasn't allowed. See, Justin Bieber, he would have just, <laughs> just, just taken that thing over there. And, <laughs> and smuggled yeah, like, it I in. don't care what your laws are. So he, he, brought, he brought Corey Feldman instead that time. Oh. Uh, <laughs> on that trip. Macaulay Culkin. Uh, well I don't know if he was alive then when he had <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he totally yeah. was because he was I think was Macaulay in... replaced Bubbles as, oh. his, as his companion. <laughs> as his we're not allowed chimp. To, Macaulay Culkin has been in the studio. We're not allowed to diss him. Oh, we're not. That's not dissing. I mean. No, he definitely had a close relationship with Michael Jackson. I know. That's why I made the joke. <laughs> okay. Question two. Uh-oh. I'm a little scared. I'm, I'm a little scared. scared. I'm a little scared. All right. During the recording of what album did Michael Jackson insist Bubbles be present in the studio? Was it A, Bad, B, Thriller, or C, Dangerous? It wasn't I'm saying dangerous. Thriller. Yeah, it wasn't Dangerous. So I'm, I'm going to go, it was Thriller. Or Bad. Yeah, I'm going to say Thriller as well. You're going to both say Thriller. Actually, guys, it was Bad. Damn. All right. Bad was like late 80s. Uh-huh. Like 80. I, all I remember, I remember like that, that, the that. late 80s. <laughs> I don't. I, I mean, I do. Weird, I don't. Weird Al Yankovic doing that. Like, Flash of the, the, the 80s-ness. The fat kind of parody of that song. Oh, yeah. So I thought it was like a little after Bubbles' time. So, all right. <laughs> All right. One more. One more. One more. Though Bubbles was one of the reasons Michael Jackson got the nickname Wacko Jacko, the singer did rescue the chimp from an animal testing facility. In which state? Is it A, Texas, B, Mississippi, or C, California? It has to be Texas. Yeah, Texas. Texas. Barbecue chimp. They're so good. Oh, man. It is Texas. <laughs> All right, not bad. You, guys are really well. you did really, really well. well. I, yeah. was, I was a little scared. We were nervous because actually no one's ever gotten all three. Oh, Correct. good. It, well, we didn't bad. get all three. You yeah. did not. Yeah. You got two out of three. I'll take that. Which is yeah. really, really good. But I do like that you worked together and agreed with each other's Yeah, answers. that was nice. <laughs> Yeah. We, we both have a bunch of random information floating around in our heads. So, <laughs> so, so we thought, and, and we were both alive as that stuff I had was a Michael Jackson on. poster in my room growing up. Sounds about right. What, what album era? This is like the Jackson 5. Oh, rad. You know. Okay. Little Michael Jackson. The little Michael Cute Jackson. Cute little before, Michael Jackson. Before anything bad happened. What was yeah. the movie that he made? Ben. Bad. Ben. 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 The also, rat movie? He no. Also, he also did... Um, the one that had any Are You Okay in it. Smooth Criminal? Yeah. That's, a, that's a, that was a, that was a m- music video. video. No, Sorry. I'm thinking but of something he, like longer. Wasn't he in... <laughs> it's uh, a really long music video. Wasn't oh, he maybe. In, like, like I was a, like, a, wait, I had a small know? brain at the, the time. The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. Didn't he, he do it with Diana Wizard. Ross? He did do that. He did. He <laughs> did. I don't, I don't know any... Moonwalker. That's it. That's oh. it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Peanut Gallery. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. He knows all things. I remember like being at my friend's house and like eating ranch Pringles and like watching that movie and we were like, life is awesome. Talk, <laughs> talk about the American table. Yeah. I love <laughs> ranch Pringles. <laughs> yeah. That's a good time. That is the quintessential American table. Yeah. Like, late we 80s, should early totally 90s. make ranch Pringles from we, scratch. We should. Yeah. We're going to go back to Nothing the lab. Nothing was complicated and... then. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Next on the menu at, Bu- at Bubby's, Ranch Pringles. Yeah. Ron, a lawsuit. Chris, yeah. thank you so much for, for coming on the morning after and spending your Sunday and with tell us. And tell us how to find you on the interwebs. Oh, God. We are the worst at this. www.bubbies.com. 
Okay. I guess that's it. And you can follow Ron on Twitter. Uh, how, do, yeah. how do people do I have that? no idea, but I'm on Twitter. Bubby's Facebook. Pi- Bubby's Pico. Instagram. Instagram. They're all named different things just to confuse you, so good luck. How and do we it, find you in Japan? Bubbies.jp. Oh, okay. And it is actually Ron doing the, the Instagram and the Twittering, so you guys can have actual conversations with I just him. don't know where it goes. <laughs> how it gets Into there. the ethers. Yeah. Nobody knows. It's a, seri- it's a series of tubes. I know that. It goes to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Sari, I'll see you next week. See you there. This is the morning after on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The theme song for The Morning After is provided by Jonathan Crowley. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>